You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Uh, last year, a good friend of ours, a good friend of mine, Joe Minicozzi of Urban Three, introduced me to this nonpartisan nonprofit called Truth in Accounting. And Truth in Accounting, I've been following now ever since. I, I love their stuff. I I love their mission. I love what they're about, and I love what they're doing. But I've learned a lot from them. They recently published the financial state of the cities 2022, an annual report that they do talking about local government and the states of their budget. Sheila Weinberg, a CPA, the founder and chief executive of Truth and Accounting, has agreed to be here with us today. Sheila, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Oh, we appreciate it. And thanks for letting people know about our financial annual financial state of the cities, which is a offshoot of also we do a financial state of the states and we also do a financial state of the unions. This is an incredible piece of work. I I really enjoyed it. And I love the methodology you use too. It's very revealing. And I think it's interesting because you, you can't have these conversations about budgets and local governments and all this without getting dragged into, you know, some type of partisan lens one way or the other. And I, I like how you say, our whole goal here is transparent accounting. We're just going to put this out there. Here's our methodology. It's very transparent and go from there. We do not advocate for anything, no tax policy, no spending policy. The only thing we advocate for is good budgeting and, and accounting. Let, let's get the transparent numbers out there, the right numbers. So because we really feel that our, our governments are being hurt harmed because citizens and even elected officials do not have the financial information they need to make knowledgeable decisions. You know, should we do a spending cut, a tax cut? Should we increase spending? You really can't make that decision if you don't know the true financial condition of your government. Amen. I want to read, this is just from the beginning of the report. I know this is on your website too, but it's a, it's a statement that you put together as an organization about who you are and what you're about. And you say, quote, we believe that taxpayers and citizens deserve easy to understand, truthful, and transparent financial information from their governments. I want to give you a second before we get started here to go through those three things, easy to understand, truthful, and transparent, because I feel like there's hardly anyone who would disagree with that. Yet, it seems like that is such a big issue to get to, right? Yeah. Governments uh, are there by the consent of the governed. And and one of their major responsibilities of the governments is to report on their actions, what they have done. And so therefore, they should be the most transparent, truthful entities in the country. Um, But unfortunately, their financial reports are very voluminous. Their budgets are very convoluted. None of it is easy to understand. You know, they're not being completely truthful about their their financial condition. You know, what I'm focusing on right now, which I was very nervous about, is that governments now with the, you know, America's Rescue Plan 
the cities and the states are, quote, running surpluses. Well, California theoretically has a, anywhere from an 80 to a $31 billion surplus. But, to, and to me, correct me if I'm wrong, Chuck, I would think that most people would think, oh, we must have extra money. And yes. <laughs> they believe they have extra money and they're trying to figure out a way to spend that extra money. But they're not considering their credit card debt. You know, they have more than $250 billion of credit card debt. So can you have a surplus if you're horribly in debt? To me, it's kind of like you saying, well, look, it, I got I got money in my front pocket, but ignore those credit cards in my back pocket. I have huge balances on it and, and not making decisions looking at those credit card debt. Right. We have the same thing in Minnesota. I want to say ours is a $8 billion or $9 billion budget surplus. And th- this is a state that has had structural deficits over and over and over again that were extremely painful and difficult to deal with in the $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion range. And now all of a sudden we have this massive, massive surplus. And you know the impetus here is, what are we going to spend this on? Like, what, how's, how's the money going to go out the door? And I know, and you know, that this is actually like a short-term accounting blip. And it's, it, it is frustrating to not have that fully communicated every time that number comes up. Yeah, no, I'm just looking at Minnesota's number. We have a website called data-z.org, which is where we, we accumulate our numbers and we put together we put together the Minnesota's financial state of Minnesota, which is, an, I think it's easy to read. You can tell me if I'm wrong, Chuck. An easy report that you know indicates that the city has, you know, 28 billion billion with a B dollars worth of bills that it needs to pay. I'm sorry, 341 million. I was looking at their total bills, but they have 341 million dollars of where they need money to pay their bills. And again, you know, if you look at finances and think about it personally, Chuck, if you got money from your uncle Sam, you know, should you use it on new spending or should you maybe pay some of your debt down? I was going to ask you this to start out with. A lot of times there's two different things we hear about local government, about government in general, but then applied to local government. And one of the first ones is that government is not like a family. There's this analogy that that you just used and that I've used before, which talks about a family sitting down at a table and figuring out the money they have coming in, the money they have going out, their long-term desires and expenses and, and all that, and sitting in like a very prudent way and figuring that out. And when you analogize local governments in that way, the pushback is often, well, government's not a family. It doesn't function that way. It doesn't work that way. Can you respond to that? Because I, I kind of feel like what is being mixed up there is a way the federal government runs and the way local governments run, which seems to me to be abstractly different, like very, very, very different. Well, you know, in our financial state of the cities, we study the 75 most populated cities and our financial state of the states, we cover study the 50 states and all of those have balanced budget requirements. And they reason that they have balanced budget requirements is one, so that they don't go into debt. And two, that there's a theory that the current, it was said best by a former treasury official, Frank Kavanaugh, who said the politicians shouldn't have the pleasure of spending, i.e. they're going to get a vote, without the pain of taxing, i.e. you're going to lose the vote. And that's how you keep them accountable. If they can spend above what the people are willing to tax, then they're just free to spend whatever they want to. 
But the offset is, oh, if I spend, I'm going to have to raise taxes. So they are like a household and that you want to keep those equal. And it, it's even more important because they have to be responsible for all of the to all the taxpayers, not just their family members. Yeah, it is more important for them to balance the budget because there's no reason that future taxpayers should be responsible for paying for current bills for current taxpayers. And also think about when you go to a voting booth and you're, you're thinking about the government's finances and you've heard that, oh, where they're balancing their budget. So you're thinking, oh, well, they must be living within their means. Well, what if they, but they're not living within their means. They're using accounting and budgeting gimmicks to actually spend more on government than they're taxing people. Well, if they would have had to raise taxes to cover that spending, of course they're gonna get votes if they are spending a lot, but if they have to raise taxes to cover that, then they're gonna lose votes. But we're missing all of that accountability because governments are not being transparent in their budgeting and accounting processes. There's a lot of debate in Washington, D.C. right now over recent years, and particularly kind of accelerated during the pandemic about different macroeconomic theories that has the government creating money, distributing that money. It kind of relies on this sense that you know the government collects tax revenues in dollars, and so people are forced to use dollars. There's no alternate currency. We can, in a sense, print money to meet our needs if we're willing to then tax it later. There's a lot of discussion about uh, modern monetary theory and and that deficits don't matter, or at least is not operative. These theories, I think, are interesting to discuss, and we've certainly discussed them at Strong Towns. But I I just want to maybe get from you that none of those theories are operable in any way when it comes to how we would run a local government. Local governments have money coming in, money going out, and it does function more like a family's budget than some national abstraction known as an economy. Am I, am I exaggerating on that? Am I right? No, you're not exaggerating on that. And I, and I guess I would, the only question I would have is, why isn't the federal government more like a family right. budget? Okay. You know, I've tried to choose like not to have that argument because I feel like the people want to believe certain things at the federal level. And I'm like, I'm just going to give you that, like, go ahead and believe what you want. But local government can't operate that way, Right. Well, they can't, you know, they could, they have a limiting borrowing capacity and they can't print their own money. Um, so they're, you know, now we do need to worry about which we, at Truth and Accounting, we started to worry about this when the banks got their bailouts. And we're like, is that setting up a bad precedent that if an entity gets into trouble, the federal government's going to come in? And, and I think we're experiencing that now with the pandemic is, the local governments didn't have large rainy day funds. And as our study put, puts out there that, you know, 63 of the cities that we studied, you know, needed money to pay their bills going into the pandemic. You know, if the banks are too big to fail, is the federal government going to say the cities and the states are too big to fail? And then then we're going to get all into that whole monetary and the theories and the economics because everything will be blended together and and the local governments can you know are the, is it going to get to the point where they're like well we really don't need to worry about our finances because the federal government will bail us out it does feel like there's an underlying assumption of that right yeah well the other thing the other reason that i point to that would be in one of the i can't remember if it was the cares act or the american rescue plan 
they went ahead and bailed out some of the private sector union run pension plans. Well, so, for example, it, uh, one of the truckers' pension plans was woefully underfunded and the federal government gave them money. Well, you can't tell me that when Illinois' teachers' retirement system that is less than 20% funded right now, when it can't pay out benefits, you can't tell me that they're not going to have a school teacher go up to Capitol Hill and say, you know, I, I taught these kids for years and they have a good point. I taught them for years and, and now I'm not going to get a pension. And Congress will just say, well, you know, forget you. I don't know. You know, it, it seems like they're setting up that they're going to, that this might happen. And it, it makes it so the local governments, as you say, even if, if it won't happen or Congress is now saying they won't do it, but does it sort of set up a mindset of, oh, well, Uncle Sam will come and help me if I have trouble. It will be true until it's not. And then when it's not, it will be a, a disaster, right? But now are people now kind of thinking that it's going to happen? They're, they're planning that way. And then if it doesn't happen, then that'll be even worse. So let me give you the other, the other thing that I often hear, which is, you know, besides governments, local government's not like a family. The other one that I get here is that government should not be run like a business, Government is different than a business. And, and I, again, I feel like there's an abstraction at the federal government that I just, I'm choosing like not to weigh in on because everybody has their own partisan lens. They want to see that abstraction through. But when it comes to a local government, what is the functional difference between a city budget at the end of the day and say a small business budget or a, a corporation budget or another budget where they have revenues and expenses and equity. What's the functional difference between that? Well, what they say is in when they make that comment that governments aren't businesses, what they're saying is, well, governments are not businesses because they are not in it to make a profit. Sure. Well, I would say with their balanced budget requirements, they shouldn't be in it to lose money. Okay. Right. That's why. Right. Okay. Um, then they say, well, the governments can go on forever. Well, I think that Detroit, um, Puerto Rico and other governments, and, and it kind of reminds me a little bit of the conversation. I mean, we had this conversation before the housing market crisis that housing prices will always go up. Then they didn't. And, and life was a bad disaster. So this idea that governments go on forever, um, that, that that's not necessarily true. You know, in recent history, they have. But and then that because they go on forever, you really don't need to worry about current debt because eventually you'll be able to pay it off. But that goes all against this whole accountability thing, because there's no reason that a future taxpayer. Let's look at retiree health care benefit debt. OK, so the government incurs this charges the retiree health care instead of Instead of putting money aside to fund their retiree health care benefits, they put it on their pen, their retiree health care credit card. There is no reason that a future taxpayer should be responsible for paying the health care of somebody who is not working for them right now. And so even if you don't want to handle it like a business, you should because, again, then get rid of your balanced budget requirement and just get rid of that. It right. Right. I want to get to that because I feel like there's some accrual things to, to chat about. But let me let me get into the report just right off the top and say, you know, you, you published this 
financial state of the cities every year. This is your sixth annual one. I want to give you a platform to explain why you do this. Like why, why is this report worth your time and effort? Why is this report important? Well, this report is, is important because it, it, as you say, governments, uh, government reports are not easy to understand. So we do a two page report that simplifies, you know, the government's issue between a 300 and 500 page reports, even very small governments are issuing these long reports. So we summarize it. Um, we also review the data to make sure it's the most accurate and the most recent data. This, the report was even more, more needed in the past because governments were not required to put their retiree health care or their pension debt on their balance sheets. Um, so their, their balance sheets were woefully, um, their debt was woefully understated. So we went ahead and started to do this report to go ahead and put that number on there. They are required to put that number on there now, but they're still not doing it completely accurate. So we go ahead and, and true up the numbers and include all of the debt and give an easy, what we believe is an easy to read summary of each and every state. So the report is 188 pages, but if you go to our data-z.org website, click on your city, you just get a two page report of just your city. Yeah, yeah. I went through this report and there were a couple of things that stood out to me that I did not know that really jumped out at me. I, I want to touch on the first one, which is the timeliness thing, which was kind of towards the end of the, the intro section. It surprised me because you know I run a nonprofit. We look at our finances every week. I report quarterly to my board. Annually, we have reports we have to fill out. I invest in companies that have annual reportings. They've got within 45 days of the end of fiscal year as a transparency thing, the shareholders have to account for their finances. What are cities required to do and what do they actually do? This shocked me. Well, the cities, um, there are some governments that have their own rules, um, but they usually don't meet those rules. There's no SEC coming in and saying you need to have it done within 45 days like the corporations. There is a government financial officers association who has set a deadline of 180 days. And most governments meet that, but um, we do have governments who, who don't even meet that deadline. For example, California just issued their June 30 of 2020's report, 538 days late. Now, you could say, well, who cares? Well, the budget process happens whether the financial statements are out there or not. But wouldn't it be good to have this information? You know, shouldn't you know your credit card debt, your pension debt when you're making those budget decisions? But if your financial report is not out, um, I think New Orleans is, we could not include their most re recent numbers in our report because their financial report for June 30, 2020 is not out. 2020, we're 400 and some days after you yeah, put this together. Yeah, issued theirs 446 days after their fiscal year end. And we have several of them that are more than 200 days after their fiscal year end. Um, St. Paul there in Minnesota is 336 days. So it took them almost a year to get these numbers. And, you know, again, you know, making decisions as accountants say, you know, the information needs to be reliable. But one of the criteria of reliable is timely. 
Well, if you don't have timely information, then it's hard to make you know, knowledgeable decisions. When I read that, it just kind of struck me in the gut because I, I did not recognize that cities were being that late. And you know, I'm a very pro-local government person. I think local governments need to be given more responsibility in a hierarchy of governments. It really offends me that they're looked at as like the lowest rung of government as opposed to like the highest level of coordination amongst people in a community. But my gosh, in order to get that, you have to be competent. And to me, being that late on your basic reporting suggests an internal level of dysfunction that is is hard for me to get my mind wrapped around. Let me put it this way, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it feels like the discipline required to get something done within 120 days is like the minimum amount of competency and discipline that you would need to run an organization of that size. And the idea that you couldn't get it done in 180 days just blows my mind. Like, I don't even know how you would make a day-to-day decision on anything, you know? Well, what they say is that, well, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of different parts of the entity. And, but you have to remember that corporations are very large and have a lot of subsidiaries and they have to issue their reports on time. Um, so, you know, we're giving them a break. We believe it should be done within 100, 100 days. The GFOA believes it's 180 days, but you know there were still 29 cities that didn't issue their financial report until after 180 days, after six months after their fiscal year in. And as you say, to make financial decisions without knowing what your prior debt is, is almost like making it blindly. Well, in, in a small city, you're dealing with you know, a tax base worth billions of dollars. You're you're running a multi-billion dollar corporation in a large city, a St. Paul, a Los Angeles, a Chicago, you're running multi-billion dollar entities. The idea that you would make a budget for the next fiscal year, not having an accounting of the prior fiscal year, it blows my mind to a degree that like I, I I was shocked. I did not know that the numbers were that bad. Well, and also the, unfortunately, the elected officials don't seem to care about these audited financial reports. If you mention, hey, you know, have you read your annual comprehensive financial report? And they're just like, well, what is that? Um, they see they have this myography of, I'm not sure if that's the right word. I'm good at accounting, not, not words. <laughs> <laughs> they look at things very, you know, within a very fine range and they they don't care about you know the long term. They they just care about the very short term. Um, now you would sort of, if you wanted to be political, you could say, well, short term views are good because the next next election is very short term, and if we're making decisions that affect badly affect the long term financial condition of the government, we really don't want our electorate to know that. Um, so right. they they do their budgets on a cash basis. Keep in mind that a the federal government, the IRS doesn't allow a corporation that makes more than $25 million to do their financial reports on a cash basis because it can be so misleading. But that's how all these governments are doing their budgets. $25 million. $25 million. If you, if you are a corporation over $25 million, you cannot use cash accounting. You must use accrual accounting. They might do a part of their financial statements using accrual accounting. But as I say, nobody pays attention to those. 
and they don't right their budgets are done on a cash in essence a cash basis which is so misleading um because it doesn't tell you you know they can go ahead and promise future benefits and get the the benefit of that i.e a boat or a union support because they've given benefits to people um but they don't have to include those in the current budget Right. And that's why we're into the pension and retiree healthcare mess that most government cities and states have. Let me add a, a point, and then I want to ask you about accrual accounting. I know a lot of public officials who are very frustrated with this, right? There are a lot of public officials who, I think you're right, benefit from the ambiguity and the obscurity and the ability to provide benefits today and not have to account for them until you know they're out of office or they've moved on. But I know a lot of people who are really ticked off that they can't, they literally can't discern what's going on in their own community, that that they are ostensibly on the city council, like a member of the, the board of operators of this entity. Let me ask you this, because I, I think you and I are using terms accrual and cash accounting that a, a subsection of our audience knows, but a lot of people don't. Can you explain the difference between cash and accrual? I'm really interested in, in your take on why cities do not do uh, real accrual accounting. So a cash accounting is, I would call it checkbook accounting. It, it's whatever goes into my checkbook or whatever comes out. That's what I'm going to account for. And when governments say that they have a surplus, what it is, is I look at the beginning of the year checkbook balance. And if at the end of the year, the checkbook balance is higher, then that is a surplus. Now, keep in mind, like California, they're running a surplus, but part of the checks that they're not writing is for their retiree health care benefits. They're not pre-funding those. That compensation cost is in the current period, but they don't, they don't put money aside to pay those benefits. Let me clarify, if I have a billion dollars of debt sitting on my books, but my cash flow is only $100,000 of debt service, in a cash accounting, I only have to worry about the $100,000, right? Yes. yes. Yeah. And, you, and, and think about it at, on a personal level, the way to explain it is, again, looking at, okay, I, have, I started with $1,000 in my checkbook at the beginning of the year, and now I have $1,200 at the end of the year. So now I have a $200 surplus. Now, ignore any debt I have, just ignore that. But look at, I have this surplus because I have extra money, not extra money, I just have money in my account higher than what I started with. And that's that's cash. Or they can say, we balance the budget. We, we started with $1,000, we end with $1,000. So we balance the budget. It doesn't worry about, well, hold it, but you incurred all these bills that you didn't pay. So one way to balance the budget is to just not pay your bills. So if a printer, you know, say the printer prints the financial statements of a city um, and they bill the city, well, as long as the city doesn't pay it until after the year end, it doesn't have to be included in the balanced budget calculation. So they can run, they they can run a surplus or balance their budget by just not paying their bills. I think a lot of people hear that and they they think that's crazy. Like no no city actually does that, but that's actually a that's common practice, do. right? That's, yeah, and that's why they have, you know, that's why they have the retiree healthcare debt because okay, let's think of a business again. So in a business, let's if I did it on the cash basis, the business started with 
$10,000, they're ending $10,000. They're paying checks, payroll checks along the way. Those get included in the budget. But if they promise employees healthcare, retiree pensions and retiree healthcare, those checks don't have to be written in the current year. Those can be, those are written in future years, but they're still a part of the employee's compensation package. And if I didn't offer those benefits to the employees, then their salaries would have to have been higher. And my, my expenditures would have had to have been higher. And so that would have affected my balanced budget requirement. Because, but because it only includes the checks you write, so they choose to not fund these pensions properly, they can still balance their budget and, and not fund. And, you know, I spent the whole weekend, my husband's like, stop it. <laughs> it's like, and here in Illinois, the governor is touting that they have a surplus and that he's going to pay an extra $500 million into the pensions. Well, if you look at their actuarial statements, it says that he's shorting the pensions by $400 billion. Right, right. But because he's only including the checks he's planning on writing in the balanced budget calculation, he can say, I'm balancing the budget, even if he's shorting the pensions by, by $3.5 billion. The, the most egregious example I've ever seen of this for local governments are cities that at the end of the year need to be able to project more revenue. And so they will go through an annexation process where they'll annex more property in to the city so they can count that revenue. But knowing they have to provide services, police and fire protection and road maintenance and all that, but that doesn't show up until the next year. So they don't have to project that, that expense out. And I mean, we've seen cities grow and grow and grow annually based on, on that little gimmick. I think people who don't know this are shocked by it, but inside government, often this cash accounting is treated as the thing you do with duct tape and bailing twine and what have you to like patch the budget up and keep it going in bad times. But then when you get into this situation where you get like a windfall from pandemic relief funds or what have you, it does have this really weird distorting effect, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it makes them think that they have surpluses. And if you have a surplus of money, then, then they think they should spend that money. <laughs> you know, just because you have, you know, again, $1,000 in your checking account um, and you have $10,000 of credit card debt, if your Uncle Sam gives you, say, an extra $1,000, should you be using that on pretty new shoes or on a vacation or, or should you be putting it, should you go ahead and pay off some of that credit card debt? And, and they're not even, they're not even talking about, no, maybe we should go ahead and take some of this and put it to pay off the pension and retiree healthcare. That is, not, I don't know if any governments are thinking of that right now. So, so let's take the next step then and say that that's cash accounting. It's checkbook accounting. It's an accounting of how much cash we have in the bank beginning of the year and end of the year without factoring in any other promises we've made that would affect a future budget. What is accrual accounting then? And how would that be different? How would I, as a resident, be getting reports or getting understandings from my local government if they were actually doing accrual accounting? So accrual accounting would include only the revenues that you've earned, and it would include your expenses. So the revenues that you would earn so would be your taxes, tax revenues. Here in Illinois, the loose wording of the balanced budget requirement says that your to balance the budget, your funds available 
are included? Well, that includes borrowed money. <laughs> right, right. No, no, no kidding. Yes. Accrual accounting wouldn't let you do that. And most governments, again, to compare, say it's their expenditures instead of their expenses. So it's the expenditures. So it's only the checks I write versus the expenses of I have incurred. So again, if if a printer sends you an invoice because they've given you services during the year, that would be included in an accrual system in your expenses. But on a cash basis, if you don't plan on writing the check until the next year, it would not be included. Right, right. How would accrual accounting then look at things like pension obligations or debt that has been taken on differently? So what they would do, and accrual accounting does this, and the governments do have accrual financial statements. Keep in mind, they don't have accrual budgeting. Uh, New Zealand does accrual budgeting, but not, not, not anybody in the U.S. And accrual, if you have a credit card debt, a pension credit card debt, that's recorded as a liability. All of your expenses, including the compensation costs related to an employee earns um, their their pension benefits every year, and that is those expenses are included in the budget, in the financial report as an expense. So if your listeners look at their financial statements of their government and look at their government-wide statements, don't look at their fund statements, just their government-wide statements, those show a truer picture. Those are done on a full accrual basis. Talk about transparency and confusing and easy to read. <laughs> um, they have another set of books behind those, which are prepared on what they call this crazy modified accrual basis, which is on the, uh, in essence, the cash basis, which it accounts for their general fund and their road fund and all of that. We have a video on how to read a CAFR. You can just look up that on, the, on YouTube, how to read a CAFR. And we just say ignore those statements because they're done on the cash basis and they don't show the true financial position or the true financial activities of a government. I know you and I have talked about this before. I just want to reiterate, maybe for our audience that has not heard this, but read it other places where we've said it. If a city takes on, uh, say, a, a new road, and we know that you know, 20 years in the future, we're going to have to pay X to fix this road, the city actually counts that road as an asset in their balance sheet not a like future liability or a future promise. Well, they're recording it as an asset, but what they're missing is re- recording the deferred maintenance. And this might be something you wanted to or didn't want to get into, but that, that's why I'm concerned. And I assume you're concerned about this, this upcoming infrastructure bill is In a big the way. federal government is going to throw all of these infrastructure money at these governments. The local government officials are going to have groundbreaking ceremonies that they're going to tout. They're going to have ribbon cutting ceremonies and look at all this money we got to the federal government where we have this new bridge, we have this new building, but they're setting the governments up for this deferred maintenance with, yeah, well, they're going to give you the money to build it, but they're not going to give you the money to maintain it. Right. Let me get back to your report. This is another thing that I guess it didn't fully shock me, but it, it was a shocking number. You looked at 75 cities. And you found that of the 75, a full 61 of them, so almost all of them, 
got to the end of the year and didn't have enough money to pay their bills. And this was largely like pre-pandemic, right? Keep in mind that the uh, latest financial information oh, is- includes the, up. yep. It, it, most of them are June 30, 2020. So it does, uh, the pandemic happened in uh, March of, uh, of 2020. There was money that was distributed to some of the cities. So they did get a little, some of the money, um, but even that money did not help the governments get out of their financial, their financial holes. And some of the cities, even if they had, a few of them have later fiscal year ends and the stock market took a dive at June 30, but then by December 31st, it was back in, back in good shape. But most of those cities, even though the stock market did well and their pension assets and their investments went up, most of them were still in bad shape. What happens to a city when they get to the end of the year and they don't have enough money to pay their bills? Well, then they probably just borrow more money or they you know, go to the, the federal government. Um, it was, you know, what happens to a city when they don't have their money to pay their bills? Illinois is a great example. I love Illinois. That's where I live. But it's a great example of here are bad things that happen when you, <laughs> you don't do your finances properly. So going into the pandemic, everything was a disaster. Governments needed cash on hand to pay all these additional expenses coming in. Revenues went down theoretically. So then you have to go to the market and you have to borrow money. Well, Illinois financial situation was so bad that when they went to the market, the interest rate that they were going to charge to borrow this money was so large that Illinois couldn't live with it. So the Federal Reserve actually had to open up a special borrowing facility for Illinois to borrow money from the Federal Reserve. They couldn't even go to the, the municipal bond market. You know, if they didn't have, you know, friendly people in the Federal Reserve, um, what would they have done? Which is shocking. And I guess the way that I would read that, too, is that the Federal Reserve is willing to take on greater risk than the market will take on. Right. I mean, that's the way we should read that. Right. Is that they're basically the reason the interest rate was high is because Illinois is a high risk to default. Now that risk has been institutionalized within the federal system. Right. Yeah. And, and then the in essence, the federal down the road, the federal taxpayers are taking on that risk. Right. Because if the Federal Reserve loses money, that will be a transfer net from the Treasury to the Federal Reserve. Yep. yep. Right. Yeah. You have in the report a list of, of the 75 cities you've, you've ranked them. And I'm on page seven here where you have the five sunshine cities and the five sinkhole cities. Sunshine being cities that have a, a net positive at the end of the, the period you looked at and sinkhole being a net negative. I have to confess, I was a little surprised to see Washington, D.C. as number one in the sunshine city. Can you, can you just talk a little bit about Washington, D.C. and why it's maybe an anomaly or why you're showing it as an anomaly? We think it's an anomaly and Irvine was, they skipped over Irvine, California. We believe that, you know, during the pandemic and during the current crisis and in usual, the federal government has a tendency to prop up uh, Washington, D.C. And during bad times, as we found, it's almost like the federal government, you know, ramped up instead of everybody else ramped down, the federal government ramped up. So then the taxpayers, more people were making money in the Washington, D.C., um, so that they, they moved ahead. It's such a crazy place because we talk about the Beltway 
as being this strange anomaly. And this is what we saw in, in 2008 as well. Housing prices crashed everywhere in the U.S., except in Washington, D.C., they went up. And, and there's this kind of reverse. It's almost like the, the dip, more difficult things become, the more the nation's capital benefits. And that's such a strange dichotomy well, that I've now really seen repeated. A, a good lesson for other governments, because going into the pandemic and coming out of the pandemic, Washington, D.C. actually had, quote, overfunded their pensions. So I'm talking about most cities, they go ahead and push that cost into the future. Washington, D.C. had actually put enough money aside to fund those. And that's what we find is governments that are, are in good shape, they manage their pension and retiree health care benefits well. Um, and the ones that are in bad shape have a tendency to push those off into the future. So Washington, D.C.'s were actually overfunded. Now, we would not say we would say good job that they were overfunded. But most governments, honestly, during good times, and I know governments can't do this, but they should. During good times, cities, pension plans should be overfunded because they have pension assets. And during good times, those pension assets are going to be high. And during bad times, those pension assets are going to values are going to drop. And so during the good times, they should be overfunded. So when the bad times happen, they don't go deeply underfunded. But I don't know if it's realistic to think that elected officials are going to, you know, are they going to have extra money in the pension plans? But again, they're using these discount rates of like they're pretending that their assets earn seven, eight percent, which you could argue they could or couldn't do. But let's say they do, but that 7 and 8% of what they're pretending they're going to earn is based upon good times and bad times. Right. And so, right. again, during the good times, they should be overfunded so that they're, when bad times happen, they, they, come, they don't drop to a large underfunding situation. Right, because right. the underfunding spirals them downward even further. Yeah, I, I, that makes a lot of sense. Two of the top five Sunshine Cities included... Plano, Texas, and Aurora, Colorado. And I, I thought those were interesting because from a strong town's lens, uh, those are places that we would call first life cycle. They're, they're very early in the growth game. And so a lot of the liabilities that they have have not come due. They've got a lot of new roads, a lot mm -hmm. of new pipes, a lot of new systems, and they haven't yet been, in a sense, burdened by the ongoing tax liability and maintenance that comes along with that. I, I just, I found that very interesting uh, because, you know, a lot of the pushback we get from those places is we've got balanced budgets. We're doing great. To me, it, it's another way that accrual accounting kind of, or cash accounting kind of hides those liabilities under the hood in a sense. Right. Right. But those two were high. The bottom five, I'm just going to read. And I, I think what, what stuck out to me here is that, as good as Plano and Aurora are doing in a, in a cash positive, you've got to 10X that to the negative when you get to Portland, Philadelphia, Honolulu, Chicago, and New York City, Washington, D.C. being the best at a plus 4,800, New York City being the biggest uh, of the sinkhole cities at minus 71,000. That that's, means every resident of New York is responsible for $71,000 of accrued liability, which is just an astounding number in my brain. It's a little deceiving. It's actually per taxpayer. So it works out per, per taxpayer. 
Sure, per, per household. household. Thank household. you. Yeah. That's a yeah. good clarification. So, but but again, the New York City, every household, they're going to have to pay their their share of the unfunded debt is seventy one thousand dollars four hundred dollars, and this is future taxes they're going to be burdened with to pay these bills that have already been incurred. And when they pay those taxes, they're not going to receive any related services or benefits. Those are to pay things that were charged previously. But they did have a balanced budget. What? <laughs> right, right. I want you to help us understand local government debt, because one of the arguments that we hear a lot or that we get see people using a lot is interest rates are at historic low levels. We have all these things that need to be done, you know, investments we want to make, infrastructure we want to build, stuff we have to maintain. I'm paraphrasing others here. It's almost irresponsible for local governments not to seize this opportunity now with the low interest rates to fix all this stuff, make good on all these promises. The Build Back Better stuff, the, uh, the federal infrastructure spending, it pretty much all requires a local match. So there is going to be local money that's going to need to be spent. Almost all of that will be debt that local governments take on to, as their share of the project. There's a sense, particularly in the, in the industry of infrastructure in particular, that debt of this sort is basically not an issue. Like It's not something we need to worry about especially when the interest rates are really low, the, the cash impact year to year is very modest and nominal. How should we think about debt? Because to me, that seems um, very flippant. And, and I've struggled to communicate that to people who are very interested in the shiny object or the big project or getting that federal money and having to come up with their local match. They're very quick to discount the debt. But, but how should we be thinking about it instead? To think about it as far as debt capacity. So how much can the government borrow? Let's say you're borrowing for a very valuable, much needed infrastructure project, then that might be a good idea as long as you put enough money aside to you know handle the deferred maintenance. But if you're doing it like you know, we need a some frivolous project, um, then it probably isn't good because you're taking away debt capacity. And when when you need to borrow money for other maybe necessary things, when maybe you have another crisis, you you will use that to to build other things that might not be needed, and you borrow money to do that. So then, therefore, you can't borrow that to handle your much needed. And also, you have to include the pension and retiree healthcare debt. And even though you know, as inflation happens, that debt just goes up. You know, because especially the healthcare, you know, it's like, well, we'll grow ourselves way out of this. Well, it's like, no, you won't, because you're responsible. You know, like New York City has a hundred billion dollars of unfunded retiree healthcare debt. And that debt goes up as inflation goes up because healthcare inflation is higher than normal inflation. So you're not going to grow yourself out of that debt. And the pensions, as all these good times happen, one thing that I'm nervous about is. Well, you know, okay, well, we need to now pay our employees more because the private sector is getting paid more. Well, when they make that decision, they, they again, look at that cash basis budget and go, okay, well, how is that going to affect the next year? They don't look at, oh, well, if we raise their salaries, 
that raises how much pension benefits they get. And that that will balloon your unfunded pension liability. But but they don't do that calculation. They don't go, you know, they they should go, how much pension, unfunded pension debt is this raise going to cost? And that is not discussed. I've got two related questions if, just to kind of wrap up. The first one has to deal with, with public officials, because I, I know a lot of public officials are frustrated by this. A, a lot of people who run for office are shocked by this when they get into office. A lot of people are very frustrated that they themselves are being asked to make budget decisions. We're in July of you know, a fiscal year. And not only am I being asked to make a budget for next year, not knowing where we're at so far this year, but I don't even know where we were last year. To many public officials that want to be responsible and want to do good work, this is ridiculously frustrating to them. Why does this have to be so confusing? How do we, and maybe that's a bigger question than we have time for, but it it, it seems like to them, I would like to give them a, a little bit of a ray of hope of you know, how they could maybe start to get a grip on where they're at, even when the system that they're in seems to be on autopilot and not really serving them as the decision maker in this entity? Well, what I would recommend is, you know, our sister website, data-z.org, they can click on their city and they can print out a financial state of Minneapolis, a financial state of LA, and at least get those numbers so they have available. And then they should, you know, again, when they're making these budget decisions, they should say, okay, well, you're telling me how much the next year this is going to affect, but how, go ahead and give me a estimate of how this is going to affect our accrual-based financial statements. So if we pass this budget, what you want to do, what is your estimate on how it's going to affect our, our revenue and expenses on an accrual basis? And if you did that over time, so they did it one year, then they did it the next year. When they issue the financial statements that are audited, they could compare, okay, here's what we budgeted. Here's how you said it would affect our cruel financial statements. Is that what really happened? And then at least they would start to get how much long-term view of their decisions instead of just the short-term view. The municipal bond market is massive. Trillions of dollars. It's just enormous. How do Wall Street investors make decisions on local governments when their books are in such shambles? I would say that they don't need to worry about that. And that's why the credit ratings are a misnomer, because the credit ratings and the bond thinkers, the people who buy the bonds, they're only worried about whether their bonds get paid. So as long as you have enough tax revenue coming in, they're going to get paid first, the bond payments. So as long, unless you're just tax revenue stop, which isn't going to happen, their bonds are going to get paid. It's okay. Well, the bonds got paid, but do we have enough money to pay for basic services and benefits? Do we have enough money to pay for pensions? Do we have enough money to pay for employee and retiree health care? That is not considered by the bond payers and not considered by the uh, credit rating agencies. So when the rating agency, when what I see cities a lot of times, local governments, counties, cities, I even see states sometimes, but but it's a lot of local governments. They'll put out these press releases and say, we just got a AAA bond rating from whatever. Look at how great we're being run. And, and, and 
My response is that like, that means nothing about how you're actually running your city. It just means how big of a, a fish you are to the Wall Street people. Am, am I exaggerating with that? No, it, no, it, it is true. You know, a lot, and that's why we started instituting grades because their grade is looking at and protecting the bondholders who get paid first. Again, as long as you have tax revenue coming in, you can get a good credit rating. We're looking at the risk to the taxpayers and how much money you're going to be on the hook for. Um, so that's why, like, Vermont is uh, was upset that we gave them an F when the credit ratings gave them a AAA rating. Well, we're, they're not looking at. And if you talk to the bondholders, the rating agencies, they will say people should not be saying that these credit ratings are an evaluation of their financial condition because they're not. But the elected officials point to them that that is what it is, and it's not. And even the bond rating people will tell you that. Right. I think we should just end again, kind of reiterating the idea that this is such a polarized country. This is such a divided nation along political lines in many ways, more so than I've ever seen in my life. And I think oftentimes when you talk about government responsibility, even though to me, the prolificacy uh, spans parties, right? It's not a, it's, it's, it, this is not a partisan thing. Sometimes it comes back to, you know, you're either big government or you're small government. I know at Strong Towns, we're very much just, we want like good accounting. We want people to actually know where they're at. It feels like that's where you are too. Can, can you just maybe reiterate the, the nonpartisan aspect of this? Yeah, we're, you know, we're nonpartisan. We don't care about tax policy. We don't care about spending policy. We care about budgeting and accounting policies. Are the budgets calculated properly? Are the financial statements counted properly? Because we really believe that the way that they're done now do not provide the citizens or even elected officials with the information they need to make a knowledgeable financial decision for their government. That was Sheila Weinberg. She is the founder and chief executive officer of the Chicago-based Truth in Accounting. Sheila, if people want to go to your website, truthinaccounting.org. Truthinaccounting.org um, or, and our sister website, data-z.org. That, that's where we keep all of our data. You can click your state, you can click your city and get information, information there. We do have on the website, you'll be asked to sign up for our morning call which is a daily newsletter of federal, state, and local uh, budgeting and accounting stories. And as you say, we're a nonprofit, so there is a donate button also. So please click on that. Well, be willing to do that. There's a uh, sign up for the morning call. I get it. It is a fascinating read. It will keep you up to date. And if you're listening and you feel like some of this financial stuff goes over your head, there's really just a, a literacy thing that you can get by tuning into truth and accounting. If you follow their stuff, if you ask questions as you're going, like, I don't understand this term, or I don't understand that term, you will quickly pick it up because they do a, a lot to make this very accessible to people, particularly non-CPAs. So Sheila, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us. I, I appreciate all the work you do and, and uh, we'll have to do this the next time you put out a report. That sounds great. Our next report is due out in May. We're going to do a combined taxpayer burden. So if you live in Chicago, how much do you owe for the city, the school district, the park district, the state? Uh, so that'll be our next report in May. Oh, wow. Okay. Hey, thank you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care.
They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.